Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, good morning again. Uh, so, uh, that was uh, great to hear, great to see. Um, So if you're just joining us today, we're in a series called If Not Now and taking advantage of the time of year to sort of look at our lives closely. And we've been sort of focusing and centering on the things that matter the most and letting Jesus tell us what's what's ultimate and what matters the most. So uh, I've been getting texts and emails from many of you about some of the things that you're doing and it's been so encouraging to hear Some of you are stepping out in ways that you never have. You're trying things. Um, I've gotten uh, people trying to, that are finding out what their kingdom purpose is. Uh, They're trusting him and they're they're joyful about it. Um, People who are having quiet times, a little more consistent and finding the value in that. And, And in fact, I'll just put this up there. These are the three things that we've sort of focused on as our central. So this sort of personal relationship with God, finding my kingdom purpose, and then being connected to others. And, uh, and I love hearing it. Many of you have said to me uh, that you're, 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 you're fighting to be more like Mary in your life. And so I, I want to fan that flame a little bit more. Um, so today, if you'll allow me, I'd like to explore this whole idea of at quiet time and talk a little bit more about what that uh, looks like and its importance in everything we're talking about. And we're basically talking about private meetings with God, your private meetings with God, value and and how they change your life. So I'm going to read a familiar text to you and, and we'll go from there. Here we go. This is in Matthew chapter five. Jesus is talking. This is a sermon on the mound. Okay. Greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, Jesus says this at one point, two chapters into this. Whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray while standing in synagogues and on street corners so that people can see them. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, they have their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father in secret. And your father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Um, one of the things I, I want to, to help you see immediately is that there's an outward part of your spiritual life and there's an inward part of your spiritual life. It's, it's very important to recognize both of these. Um, so there's an outward and an inward dynamic to your spiritual life. So Calvin Miller says it like this. Outwardness and inwardness are the poles of spirituality, as north and south are poles of the earth's geography. I don't know if you've been reading about this, but I have been reading about it. Uh, the North Pole is moving. It's scaring me to death. I'm like, where's it going? I'm like, well, where, how does the North Pole go somewhere? All right, so I've been reading on this thing, right, because I'm melancholy and I'm, I'm ready for the world to end any second. And I'm thinking, all right, it's going to be the North Pole. 
Uh, and so evidently there's this outer core, this liquid on the outer core, and there's probably smarter people that understand better than I do, but evidently, whatever it is, it's dragging the North Pole uh, around the planet, and it is now heading towards Siberia. All right? Uh, <laughs> crazy. I'm like, wow. Anyway, keep it in mind. I want there to be a graphic picture in your head, because here's what... Uh, I think Jesus is saying about the outward and the spiritual life. So this would be your north, this would be your south. Uh, this would be your, um, your, pri- your, your private world, this would be your public world. This would be uh, an unseen world, this would be the seen world. Um, so all these different images come to mind with this north and south picture. Calvin Miller makes a great observation, I love the way he says it, he says... The outward is easily spoiled. It's easily spoiled without a strong inner life to guide it. So um, what happens, how does your outward life begin to start to go sort of uh, towards Siberia? All right, sort of start to drift. What, what's, what's dragging your spiritual life to this outward sort of weirdness? What does that look like? Well, here's what an outward, a strong outward, but a weak inward spiritual life sort of feels like. You begin to start to serve your own interests. You become like a, like a Pharisee, a hypocrite, Jesus calls them. They're very outwardly spiritual. They try to do lots of things. But they're performance-driven. They're ego-driven. They relate to God on their terms. They think God owes them. They do a lot of good things, and they sort of operate with God like, hey, you know, you kind of owe me. And so they hold that over God's head. And you can't help but when the, when the, when the outward sort of part of your spiritual life gets disconnected from an inward, and you start to move towards Siberia, you get critical, you get legalistic. You get judgmental of other people. You start to see things you're doing that other people aren't doing. You notice it quick. You feel more spiritual. And you start to be proud of yourself. Ego-driven. What that creates is a sort of fragmentation because the inner part of you is not strong enough, not near strong enough to sustain this view of uh, uh, spirituality that you've tried to attain. It just doesn't work and you get fragmented. And you start to feel all those feelings of, you know, my private life doesn't match my public life. And it gets, just gets weird. It's not real. You get hollow on the inside. It's not honest. And it's, in fact, exhausting. Trying to keep up the image, you know, because this is to be seen. This is the visible. And your spiritual life just gets really out of whack and starts to drift Drift towards Siberia. Uh, so one of my favorite stories, and I always think of it. Shared it with you before, I guess years ago. But I always think of it when I think of this text of Matthew 6. Uh, it's the story of Michael Plant in 1992. The, maybe the greatest American yachtsman, at least up to that point. Um, who wanted to do a solo crossing of the North Atlantic from the United States to France. And um, so many considered him to be, uh, you know, to have seafaring skills that were unequaled. Uh, 
He also had incredible equipment. If you look at uh, his, uh, you, you go see pictures of him, you can see his, his sailboat was called the Coyote, and it was state-of-the-art. I mean, it literally had everything. And with his skills, when they waved goodbye to him, uh, it was like, this is not going to be hard for him. So everyone sort of was pretty confident. It was 11 days in, and they stopped hearing from him. They recognized there was violent storms on his course, and so they began a search. And uh, turns out a freighter ends up finding him. Actually, not him, but his boat, the coyote, floating upside down. About 450 miles northwest of the Azores Islands. Uh, So everyone in the sailing world, and I'm no sailor, but they were very surprised to find the coyote upside down in the water. Because sailboats, they don't capsize normally. Um, They're built to take a vigorous pounding. And even if they do capsize, they usually right themselves. uh, Because that's what they do even if momentarily they're upside down. Well, it turns out when they discover and they pull the ship up, hoping to find him, but they don't, uh, it just turns out that at the keel, where you attach this 8,000-pound weight at the bottom of the boat, was unbolted and completely gone. Well, it turns out you got to have that weight below the surface in order to be able to survive and keep the the ship afloat. And so the writer I was reading as he was telling the story, he said this line that I've never forgotten. This was years and years ago. There must be more weight below the water line than there is above it. In other words, you got to be sturdy. You got to be solid and you got to be heavy on the underside, inside, if you're going to maintain the kind of outward life that doesn't, that always writes itself. And I've never forgotten the image. And he said a violation of this weight distribution will always result in disaster. If somehow, spiritually speaking, that I've, I've somehow come up with an outward spiritual life, but it doesn't have any inward weight below. This is a private life that's made of chaff and a public life that I've concocted with all kinds of scaffolding of spiritual attempts and activities and it looks really great from the outside inside I'm dying it's not real it's not honest outward lives are important Jesus is not saying that you never pray in public they just do it to be seen they want to appear more spiritual than they really are that's what happens you appear to be better than you really are. Um, you're like, what in the world? Without this inner weight, you're going to be heading. In other words, you get spiritual top heavy. Maybe your life is spiritual top heavy. Uh, what does Jesus say about that? What does Jesus say? His harshest words. Matthew 5 is sort of our, you know, our text, but Matthew 23, Jesus really lashes in his harshest words are built for the people who have who've who've created a spiritual life like this and he says in matthew 23 
They do all, here they are, the same people. They're called Pharisees. They were just very religious people. They, they, they do what they do to be seen by people. They make uh, their phylacteries wide and their tassels long. I don't know. Phylactery sounds like a word you're not supposed to say in church. I, I don't know what it is about the word. I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to say that word. But you know what they were, literally? They were little boxes. And they wore them on their sleeves, on their wrists, like this. And they wore them around their head right here. And it, and it was just the law. The commandments written really small in the box. And everywhere they walked, everybody just looked like they were just big outward law keepers. They literally wore their spirituality on their sleeves. It was outward for people to see. And Jesus says to them, woe. He gives them seven woes. I'm just going to look at two. Two woes. Two woes. Two of them. All right? He says to them, experts in the law, you Pharisees, you're hypocrites. Why? You're clean on the outside. You clean the outside of the cup or the dish. But inside, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. That's what happens when your spiritual life starts to drift toward the outward. You lose your bearings, and pretty soon it just, just you're, you're doing the things you think are for God, but they're really for you to look better. And they're all out of greed and self-indulgence. He says, first clean the inside so the outside can become clean too. You know, when you clean the inside of the dish, usually the outside gets clean on, on, in the process. So the outside matters, but it comes out of the inside. So uh, what he's going to say is, you, you, can't, you, can't, you can't spiritual life can't be moving in this direction. You're not even in the moving in the right direction if you're starting outward and then moving inward. It's got to be from here moving this way. So Jesus will say again in the second woe, you're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside. and Inside, you're full of dead men's bones. This is harsh language. It's just empty. Say, how in the world do you get this? This is just what it sounds like. If you're married, you know, it'll feel like this. Because you could, you could be married to someone for a really long time and, and literally have no intimacy or closeness or conversation or, or care what another person thinks or feels or needs in the course of a day. Which that's how you know you're just really heading south. Or in this case, north. All right, with your, with your marriage. You know, you know, the bills get paid somehow. Dishes get done. Dinner gets made. Kids get to school. Um, you know, we, we get to work and we get home and all this stuff's happening, but we're like two ships that pass the night. We may even sleep in the same room and still there's no intimacy or connection. And people do it for years and years and years. And if you ask somebody, somebody at work says, hey, are you married? You go, yeah, I'm married. And that's about as far as it can go is if they ask one more question like, you're like, how's it going? You'd probably, all you could do is just list off the stuff that's going on because there's no connection. That's, that's what it feels like spiritually. And you can just feel like a good married person because you're just doing your duties. But inside you're hollow, angry, self-centered, self-pitied. Name all the selves. Self-oriented, self-sufficient, self-reliant, and you're disconnected. That's what happens spiritually. How does that happen because people do it, sure, they'll go to church on Easter, you know, they'll sit in a row every now and then, and then they'll, you know, they might give a check every now and then, or they might do this or that. Some people do lots of things 
They feel good about themselves spiritually, but inside it's hollow. There's no relationship. You don't really know him. You don't wake up every day wondering what he wants you to do and, and, and trying to do it and caring about what he thinks in your life. You don't really know him. Just doing a bunch of stuff. Somehow or another, it happens that he gets shut out. Remember the text in Revelation? In Revelation, the beginning of the book, it's the last book of your Bible. It's the scary book. Uh, but at the beginning of the book, it's very easy. It's very clear. There's, a, there's letters written to seven churches, seven churches of Asia Minor at the time. And they're all going through their struggles. And Jesus comes in and with every church, tries to help them figure out what the trouble is. We get to the last church. He's got nothing good to say about them. And he says what is without question the harshest thing to them, to this church. Uh, it's the church of Laodicea. And he tells them, um, I know your deeds too, and you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. This is God saying you nauseate me. What nauseates God? Well, we're going to see that in just a second. But the cold and hot thing, it's not necessarily good or bad. Cold and hot water. I need both. How about you? It's not a good or bad in the hot or the cold. The hot or cold are both good. So they, Laodicea didn't have any good water sources. So they had to pipe water in from two locations, Hierapolis and Colossae. One, one piped in hot water and one piped in cold. And they needed them both. And here's what he's saying. You're, you're useless in every way. There's, I can't find anything good there. And so what's the problem with this? What, what makes God sick? What's his problem? Here what he says. I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into his home and share a meal with him. He's trying to have a meal with you. He's trying to get in, in the room with you. And what does he say? You've shut me out. You're doing stuff, but not with me. It's not personal anymore. It's become a religion to you. It's the worst thing about religion is when it becomes religious and not personal anymore. I wonder how many things you do religiously you'd never do if you knew Jesus close. If I knew him better, I'd never do that. That's what he's saying. Somehow, Jesus has become the stranger outside. Don't let him know we're in here. That's the idea. The relationship has just become a religious thing. And I jotted down a few things that what happens to people when they're out, when the outward is, is more substantial than the inward, when, you know, like somehow, somehow we've shut Jesus out of the whole picture. And, and here's what happens. You know what you'll do? You'll call out to him on the other side of the door only when you need him. Only when you need him, you'll, you'll, you'll hope he's still there. Um, if things don't go the way you planned, you know, you've been doing a bunch of stuff outwardly, and you, you sort of think God owes you a little bit. You're a little proud of all the things you've done. You think God should be proud of you and probably owes you a little something. So when things start to go awry, you've got somebody outside the door to blame. How could you do this to me? Look what I've done for you. That's a degenerated, that's a Siberian spiritual life. Uh, you, you start coming and going through the back door to avoid them. 
I'm going to just live my own life out here. I don't want to walk past him anymore. And, and then you know, what, you know what happens is you've got your own private space. you just got your own private space. Hey, this is my space. And Jesus, you can't enter here. You, you, you can't have any say in this. I don't want to sit down with you because if you come into my house, you're going to see things. Uh, if we're eating together, we're going to converse about things. And some things I like to keep to myself. I have thoughts and ideas. And, you know, I don't really want to surrender them to anybody. I don't want to have to spit them out. I don't want to have to share them with you and get exposed. It's not what I want to do. So that's what happens. You can tell that's an unhealthy spiritual life. So, how do you combat it? How do you combat that? I would ask this question, and I think it's a great question to ask us ourselves spiritually. How in the world are you going to combat? Because let me tell you, your default mode is to turn Christianity into religion. That's your default mode. You'll turn it into a legalism. You'll turn it into things you do, and you're trying to make him happy, and then you hope he makes you happy. How do you protect yourself against that? Well, Jesus says, what did he say in this text? Go into, this is what we say to our teenagers when we're upset at them. Go to your room. We say that to our kids, get to your room. Now, Jesus isn't mad, so this is not about that. Jesus is going to tell these people who are just so outward oriented, go build your spiritual life. So I told you, uh, about my spiritual life, I wake up in the mornings and um, I have at the foot of my bed a little love seat just like this. Uh, I was going to wear my pajamas, but that's usually what I'm in when I do it. I thought I'd just put slippers on. I thought I'd just put my slippers on and uh, I usually have gone to get my cup of coffee. Then I sit right here on this right side of it right here. Gail's got her stuff packed over here. There's no room over there. And so I sit right here with my coffee cup, and I use my phone. I, I, I use uh, my phone because I use, and I'll explain this in just a second, but I have two apps on my phone that I use. One's called YouVersion, Y-O-U version, and I use, I use it. Uh, I'm translating, and I also use Olive Tree, and I'll explain those in a minute. But anyway, I get to use those. And the th- other thing I love about having my phone with me is that I can take them with me everywhere I go. It's with me everywhere I go. So I can refer to where I was all the time. This is quiet time. This isn't study time. This is quiet time. So I'm sitting here having my coffee and I'm reading the text. Uh, So when you think about my life, nothing represents my public outward life more than this moment right here where I'm standing before you. That can really look a lot better than it is. Over there is where the weight needs to be. So uh, I want to talk to you about that. Here's what God says in this text. You, gotta, you, you go to your room to meet with God alone, and here's what's happening when you do that. You learn the value of the invisible. He calls it the secret place. Private. Where all of a sudden you get drawn to the unseen where nobody sees you and you're in nobody's eyes and you're not, there to, you're not there to impress anyone. In fact, the truth is you disconnect from everything that you would normally count on, that you would count on uh, to feel spiritual. You disconnect from all of it immediately by sitting there. 
by having an inside kind of life. There is where you figure out what's really lasting and what's not lasting. And you disconnect from all the stuff that you usually count on. So inwardness sort of draws you to this unseen reality. And Jesus is saying, you, you, you pull away from it and say, how do you radically disconnect from all that stuff, from the religion, from the outward, from uh, the self-centered religion, the hollow religion? You get yourself to the room and you start developing a private spiritual life with God. That's how you do it. That's how you radically deal with the drive toward the outer life, the things you got to do and the things that can easily start to matter to you that don't matter. Just by showing up, listen, just by showing up there, I have said there's an unseen reality I need to move toward. So most people don't have quiet times because they're so busy in this life, in this outward world, they've completely devalued this one. So immediately, if it's not happening in your life, if you're never moving inward, then you know, man, you're hung up big here. And how much of my spiritual life is in Siberia? And I don't even know it. I can't even disconnect from it. I can't meet with them alone. Now, uh, what happens when you, you know, disconnect you get reoriented and it's dangerous because when you're sitting there alone alone with your thoughts you know we don't like to be alone with our own thoughts we don't want we don't like the idea of maybe the way we're thinking or living to be under the scrutiny of someone else but it's what happens when you're there um i'm insecure and all my insecurities are going to come right to the surface the moment i'm sitting there and everything I really depend on from my source of life, which is out here, is really going to come to the fore as I sit there almost agitated. And I'm not even sure I'm interested in seeing the real me. I like, the, I like what people see of me, but I don't even like seeing the real me. Because it just happens when you're sitting there. Um... So Calvin Miller, who's had, without question, the most influence on, my, on that sort of inner life of mine, uh, I remember reading a couple decades ago in, in um, my book, he, he, he had these three things to say, and I want to just talk about them showing up here. He three paradoxes about the inner life, the seat over here. And this is what they were, and I've never forgotten them. They're profound, and they've always affected me. Aloneness is presence. Somehow it can feel like God's all in this and he's there and here's Jesus knocking at the door and in Matthew 6 he says, go to your room, God sees you there and so I go over there where he sees me only and so what matters to him becomes most important to me. If I'm never there, it's easy for the things out here to become more important than the thing there. See? He sees and when I'm alone, he's present in a way can't explain can't explain. Retreat is advancement. You know, one of the reasons we don't come over here is we got so much to do. We're so important. We got things we got to get to and things we got to get done. And, and if I don't, and blah, 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 and I, 
I need and I want. Da, 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 da. And we don't think we're getting anywhere. And he says, no. When you come here, you're actually advancing in the world. Otherwise, you're not making any progress whatsoever. You think you're moving great and doing exactly what God wants you to do. And you're probably making him sick. Because you don't really know him. And then the beyond is within. It's one of my favorites. And he pictures God sort of striding along the galaxies as big as he is. But he's willing to meet me in that chair. And I've got to go inward for him to come. And that's what he wants. That's why he's knocking at the door. Because he's not, he's not one to stand outside the church and just look in and see everybody and go, good for you. That's not him. He wants to interact with you at a deep level. He wants your life to really change. He wants you to know him and love him. And you say, what, is that? What, 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 what comes out of this? Well, one of my uh, favorite thoughts in this text is this. The Father, he sees in secret, look, will reward you. Now, I've thought about this over the years. Uh, I'm really glad that he doesn't tell you what the reward is. Because then you'd go looking for it. Wouldn't you? You know, you'd come over there and go, all right, I'm here. What am I getting today? And there you go. You just fell for it again. You just fell into the trap of religion. I'll do for you. You do for me. That's religion. I don't love you. That's, that's, a, a marriage can't thrive on that. Your marriage can't thrive on that mentality. Neither can your relationship with God. So what's the reward? Well, I want to talk about that. Um, because this, this reward is, is it's, a, it's a personal thing and it's an intimate thing. When I'm there, I, I sense him in a way I don't sense him anywhere else. I hear him in a way I don't normally sense him. I'll tell you what a great reward is. One great reward that you get is really humility because when you're sitting in this chair and your life is passing before your eyes and you're reading a text of scripture and you're sitting there and all of a sudden your sin comes to mind, a humility will come over you. And then when you come outside, you're far less judgmental of other people because you've just been in touch with your own sin really well. You're far less critical of other people. You don't turn everything into a legalistic thing about ritualistic, religious, box checking. You're far more gracious to people when you see your own sin. That's a great reward. How about resolve? You know, you get there and God shows you something or he, he, says you ought to do something, all of a sudden I'm willing to sacrifice when I'm sitting here in a way when the reality hits me harder there than I am when I'm out here running around doing things. Oh, Lord, I can't do that right now. You see, my hands are busy. Oh, Lord, you can't. You see, I can't do that. Lord, I can't. I don't have any money on me. I, baby, yeah, that's your outside. But when you're sitting there and everything's crystal clear and the moment is, <laughs> what can't be done? What can't you figure out? All of a sudden you come up out of that chair resolved to whatever it is God has asked you to do. You're just more inclined to sacrifice. One of my favorite things that happens in the chair is uh, 
as I'm reading a text, and I'll, I'll explain how that works in just a second, but you're, you're sitting here and you're reading, you know, and uh, all of a sudden, this is my favorite thing that happens. It's what I wait for more than anything else is I wait for God to give me an idea. How could I do that, Lord? What, what, what do you want me to do? Is there somebody you want me to serve? Is there somebody you need to speak to? Is there somebody I need to encourage? Somebody will bring somebody to mind. Is there anything? Just give me an idea. You know, I was in Aspen sitting just like this. When God said, I want you, I want you to find some men and meet with them. Now, you don't know this about me, probably. My wife knows it. And the elders probably know it. But I'd rather be in front of this big crowd than 10 men. This is not, it's uncomfortable. I hate saying that because they're going to try to take over the group now. Because they know I'm weak. But it's, but it's, it's, it's not where I, I, my strength seemed to be. And so the first time I, I thought it, I just wrestled with God. I said, God, that's, that's, I don't know about that. That's not where I'm best. Yeah, but I want you to do it. We wrestled with that a little bit, and then it became clear I was going to do it. And then all of a sudden, you have your first meeting, which we had this past Wednesday, and, and, and God shows up in a way you go, I, I don't know. And there's nothing like doing, doing something that God gave you the idea for and then watching him make it happen, and you're just sort of there. And you're working with him, and you're just in it with him, but he's doing it. There's nothing in the world like it. Ideas and imagination, God, give me something. God, God's got a whole world of things that could be happening in your life on a daily basis and you'd be excited about it. Listen, those are the things that make me excited. I've been excited about a lot of things going. I got, a couple, I got two things in my life that are the most exciting thing in my life. One of them is that group. And it's only because God pushed me to the edge. It's only because he's pushed me to the edge. Then I have another. But there are things he's got to do and I get to be involved and that's it. Most exciting things. And I'm asking, do you have any of those kind of exciting things going on in your spiritual life that you and God have figured out you need to do? Nobody tells you, you, you got it from him. That's where the resolve comes in. And you know what happens? You start to pass by lesser meals. You know, one of my favorite things about sitting here is it's like, I can't believe some of the crap I think. I can't believe it. I can't believe some of the stuff I want. You know, if you do this on your own, I was going to do it one Sunday in the series, but compare Genesis 3 to Matthew 4. In Genesis 3, you know, God has told them very clearly, don't eat from this tree. He's, that's the first Adam. The first Adam is told, don't eat from this tree. Satan comes in and it's like, all he does is just punch holes in what God, poked holes in what God had to say. He didn't really say it. He didn't really mean that. You don't have to do that. And all of a sudden, the fruit started to look so good that they just ignored everything God had to say. And then you get to Matthew 4 and you got this, you got Jesus who's the second Adam, the guy who's going to do it right. He's the one who came and did it right for us. He's sitting there and Satan comes at him and blasts him with the, oh, the hardest kinds of temptations you can have. All the stuff you and I fall for all the time. And he's just so confident. He can see through 
the temptation. He can see through the delusion. He knows full well, even though they're not necessarily bad things, things I could do. I can see through them clearer. That's why you need to be in that chair. Because when you're out here hustling and bustling and proving yourself and, and, and showing off, your ego's in the way. And you'll fall for anything. Everything that looks good, you're falling for it. Whether it's a sail or a body, you're just falling for it. And that's what I love. That's the reward. Isn't that a reward? Wouldn't you call that a reward to be able to see through the things that matter and the things that don't? So let me, let me uh, show you something here. I have a little uh, visual that will tell you how I see quiet times working. Uh, first thing, and then I'll walk you through each piece. First one is to show up. You need to get there. If you get there, you have said... There's an unseen reality. There's a closet in the room. I know God's there and I'm going there. I'm going. Remember that hell or high water statement? Some of you have been feeding that one back to me. Hell or high water, I'm going to get to that place because I know what's there is the most real thing I'm going to be in touch with all day. The rest of it will be an illusion. I've got to have something tangible and real. I'm going to get there. So you show up and that just shows that you've just turned your back on this. It's kind of like giving. When you give, you turn your back on money. You haven't turned your back on money unless you're a giver. Oh, money, yeah, I do this every now and then. But if you're not generous, the way you tell money it doesn't matter is you give it away. You give some. Well, this is the way you turn your back on outward things. You get over there. Okay, so you show up. The second thing is, and I use Bible apps. These are just two apps. This is called Olive Tree. This is called the Holy One. Now, the, the Olive Tree is to translate um, the language. So if you're reading through it in the original language, this, this gives me everything I need technologically. I can parse verbs. I can look at vocabulary. I can't remember any of that stuff right here. So it's easy for me. The U version, this is called the U version. And, I, and, and it's got great stuff in it, easy to, to navigate, find out any text I want to be in. And I got them right there. So I have them sitting right there in my phone with me when I'm sitting there. Now, the whole time I'm doing that, I'm just going to say something. A lot of people won't show right here because they're afraid. Because when I read this, let me tell you how I read this, first of all. Not, don't try to be a scholar. I read it like it's, a, like it's written to me. Read it like it's written to me. I don't read it like it's a book I've got to figure out. I read it like it's written to me. And I want the Spirit of God to show me something in it. And so during that time, I'm praying and I'm meditating. I'm thinking and I'm asking questions. God, show me. I'm open. This is the place where you say to yourself, show me anything you want to show me, I'm open. Even if it hurts. So a lot of people don't want to get there. They don't, they don't, they don't want to say that, so they won't go sit there. Because when you sit here and he comes to meet you, you know, he's got scars. He's going to show you some stuff that hurts, and he's going to ask you to do it. And you're going to say, I don't, I, don't have any, I don't have any scars. I don't do that stuff. That's scary. That hurts. Oh, no. You're meeting with somebody who's paid a price, so you're going to have to pay one. And you pray and you meditate over that. And then the second thing that happens, or the next thing that happens, as I'm praying and meditating through what I'm reading, uh, there's a bridge. This is a really, really important 
peace. From here, I'm trying to figure out, okay, God, what do you want me to do with what I just read? And that's what the footsteps are for. I got to cross over bridge. I got to get over certain things. And then I've got to, I've got to take a step out. I got to figure out what he wants me to do. So when I'm sitting there, I'm thinking about what has to be done. What does he want from me? Okay, and there's a number of things that could be happening in here. Um, I might read something that shows me very clearly a sin I'm committing I need to stop. And it just hits me really hard. Or there may be uh, some truth God just brings to the forefront and go, I need to think that better because I'm not thinking that way right now. Um, there could be something I need to uh, apply. What, what do I need to do with that? That's what I'm asking at all times. So um, I'll, I'll say, what jumps out at me? And then I cross this bridge, student, you know, what do I need to do with that? That's why if you're only reading, it's okay to only read. But there's got to be a time when you're thinking to yourself, God, let's talk together. Think about it. I'm going to think about this all day. And maybe it doesn't come to me today, but by the time I drive home from work, it might hit me hard what you want me to do about what I read today. So um, I guess it was last week. I'll show you. I'll show you one. Then then we'll be done. So um, I'm reading. I was reading through Philemon. So I'm sitting in my chair and I'm reading. And if you don't know the story of Philemon, it's only one chapter. It's, just, it's, a little, it's a little letter. And so Paul writes to Philemon. Philemon's a spiritual stud. He's hosting, he's like a small group leader. He's hosting the, uh, part of the church in his house. And this is in Colossae, okay? This is the church at Colossae. Philemon is like a spiritual giant or leader in it. And um, uh, he has, and he's, and he's got a slave working for him, Onesimus. And when I say the word slave, don't, don't panic and, and don't make me explain that all right now. The idea is that's how you paid back somebody you owed. So Onesimus probably owed Philemon. And being that Philemon was a great guy, just an awesome guy, if you had to work for somebody, he would be the guy you want to work for. So Onesimus is probably paying back a debt and uh, he decides one day, I'm done with this. I don't care about the debt, I'm leaving. And so he leaves Philemon. Well, that was absolutely against the law. Can't do it. You violate somebody's rights very significantly if you bail on paying them back what you owe. So he runs, and guess what happens? He runs into Paul, of all people. Paul was the one who led Philemon to Christ. It's like, is God trying to trap this guy or what? So Onesimus, this guy, runs into Paul. Paul leads him to Christ. And now Paul's got to write a letter, and he's got to do two hard things. He's got to tell Onesimus to go back and make it right. So if you're, a, if you're an Onesimus character, you go, like, what do I got to make right in my life? And then if you're a Philemon, you go, who do I need to accept? Because Paul's going to make a really strong case that Philemon, you need to take Onesimus back. And so I'm reading through this text, and I, don't, and I had never read it through, you know, translating it. And when we, got to, when we got to this verse, I think it's this verse right here. This is what Paul says to Philemon. If you regard me as a partner, this is a great word for like a fellow worker, like, like if you and I are partners in the gospel, accept him as you would me. 
Now, if he has defrauded you of anything or owes you anything, charge what he owes you to me. Okay, you're having your quiet time and you're reading that. I'm sitting there right now. I'm sitting there and I read that text and all of a sudden, like out of, like a lightning bolt out of nothing, nothing scholarly about it, all of a sudden I think to myself, forgiveness costs somebody something. You can't, you can't offend or hurt anyone without somebody. Somebody's got to pay a cost. And immediately, of course, my mind runs to the fact that God has paid a debt for me. And so now I'm overwhelmed by the fact that I can't believe Jesus would pay that kind of price for me. Jesus would say something like this to his father. Hey, if Pete owes you anything, charge it to me. Charge it to me. So all of a sudden, I'm just feeling like God loves me despite the fact that I can get it wrong so many times and I'm amazed and then immediately got across a bridge so there's a thought to think of and just relish in but now I think to myself is there anyone I'm making pay is there anyone I'm making pay in my life like I'm not forgiving I'm not willing to absorb the price God would really hate that if he absorbed the price for me and I won't pay it. Because I know forgiveness. Somebody's got to pay a price. Paul's willing to take price. And he didn't even do it. He's not even a part of it. And he's willing. To do it. So I'm sitting there just going, all right, who in my life, who in my life am I making pay a debt right now? Like I'm withdrawing from or don't want anything to do with them, avoiding them or, you know, uh, mean to him or whatever. That's all I want to happen when I sit down with him. What jumps out at you? And then what, what do I have to cross? What bridge do I have to cross to get there? And let me just tell you, under this bridge are little trolls. They're trolls, little monkey teeth trolls. And they're all in there going, you know, and you're sitting there going, well, they deserve it. You know, you know what he did to me. That's the troll. <laughs> oh, well, you know, Lord, I would, but I really don't have the money. You want me to sacrifice? You want me to pay that price? I can't pay that price. I can't do that for them. I, I can't. And you're fighting. These little trolls are doing that all the time. And you got you to gotta get across this bridge to the point where you're saying, God, I'm not going to let those voices win. I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. Well, I've always thought I'd let Christ wipe that away. Now, I'm going to give you one more story because these are my two favorite stories that sort of picture this. Uh, So the first one is Michael Plant in that boat, the weight beneath. The second one is this, uh, again, Calvin Miller in another book. He and his family go on vacation to, this great, to the Great Barrier Reef. And I love the way he describes this. You're going to love this. He says, like all visitors to the reef, I was at first overwhelmed by the odd sensation of standing up only ankle deep, 70 or 90 miles out in the middle of the ocean. 
It was for me a very odd sensation. I thought about Peter and how he must have felt when he walked on the water to see Galilee. But once my ankle-deep wonder had passed, I remembered why I made the trip. I'm here with my wife and son. My son's a scuba diver. My wife and I are snorkelers. Snorkeling for us is a pastime, but for my son, scuba diving is a sport. But while my son plunged deeply beneath clear waters to bury himself in the wonder of the mysterious ocean depths, my wife and I were wearing masks, only floated on the surface face down. In some ways, we were all looking at the same thing. My wife and I were literally sunburned, sunburned our backs in our surface study of the reef while our sun plumbed its wonders. There were differences, other differences in the day. My son had spent many years learning to go deep. Deep requires years of practice. Deep cannot be achieved instantly on the first dive. There's an equalizing of pressure uh, in your head. Facial sinuses must be developed gradually. Going deep can be dangerous, even fatal. What amazes me most, and this is really great, what amazes me most is what what we reported upon returning from the trip. Ask me if I've ever been to the Great Barrier Reef, and I will tell you hastily, oh, yes, I've been there. So will my son. However, the truth is, the content of our experience was greatly different. We will both spend the rest of our lives talking about that experience and our enthusiasm, but only our son really knew the reef. Only he understood the depth of it. Spiritually speaking, we can all talk a language like we've been there, done that. But very few of us have that experience with God where he speaks to us and we act on it. He speaks to us and we act on it and we have a private communion with God that we take everywhere we go. And then he makes this summary here. He says, real spiritual divers are so in love with the depths that they don't spend much of their lives trying to make oceanography real in a world where bird baths define the smaller passions. Oh my gosh. Are you top heavy? Got an outward spiritual life, but you don't have an inward one? How off do you think that is? To bow your heads. Father, the very thought that you stand at the door and knock is overwhelming to me. I remember when you first knocked on my door. And you came into my life the first time. And there have been times throughout my life where I sort of kicked you out, you know. You end up on the outs. And if there's someone in the room today, Lord, that's never opened the door to you at all, I pray they do they recognize and realize who's out there how much you love them what you've done for them and for the rest of us who know you already Lord and we've shut you out today has to be the day we open that door wide let you in see anything you want to see take anything you want to take have anything you want to have bring anything you want to bring today we invite you Jesus Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.